I just can't help as I look back through the entire Beatitude series that each and every time we are confronted with this choice. How are we going to live in response to something that at least we say to ourselves we believe in Scripture? If, if, if what we believe is true, we believe Jesus, who Jesus says that he is, then how do we live our lives in response? And every day we have an opportunity for a choice. Recognizing, of course, that the world that we are surrounded with pulls us one way, promising us something that each and every time we've been pulled that way, we find does not satisfy. Or, or do we go against the current? Do we choose a different path? And are we willing to accept the consequence? What is the consequence? Well, rewards in heaven or persecution here on earth. Scorn, false accusations. It's a tough decision. Is it worth it? Something to think about. Hey friend, I'll see you next week. Cool. Um, so tonight, finally, this has been a long one. Uh, we are in the gospel account of Matthew again. and But for the last time, finally, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes together. And again, this is a sermon that Jesus uh, gives early on in his public ministry that is uh, full of a lot of truth that we've been uncovering week to week. So we'll take this time in conclusion of the series to read all the Beatitudes together again from verse 1 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And this is ours. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men should revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who came before you. So again, that last bit there, 10 through 12, is what uh, we're going to be looking at tonight. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, Jesus says, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so per persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. Now these three verses that I've just read, I believe, make up what's considered the eighth beatitude. We've looked at the first seven of them, but tonight as we look at the eighth beatitude in verses 10 through 12, we're actually going to find that there is a difference between this one and the first seven. 
it seems I would argue that there are three differences, first of all, uh, between this beatitude and the rest of them, because it, I'm going to argue it seems to be singled out, to be somehow of importance. This supreme importance is to the church, and Jesus stands and preaches to his followers on this Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes. He wants to emphasize to them, his audience, and to us in the millennia after these words are spoken, that this concluding Beatitude, this rule of life, is of supreme importance. Now, how do we know that? Well, again, using this idea of the economy of words, we see that in this one, this Beatitude, it's repeated. We find in verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted. Then in 11, Jesus seems to repeat himself. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. He's emphasizing the particular importance of this beatitude. But secondly, we know it's of supreme importance because in verse 10, we see that he says, blessed are they which are persecuted. Yet in verse 11, the person is changed from they to you. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, shall persecute you. All the rest of the Beatitudes are presented in the person of they. And maybe the Lord wants to emphasize to us today, as well as to his disciples to whom he was preaching that first time, that this is of supreme importance Blessed are you. Blessed are you if you listen to this. If you take note of these truths. Thirdly, not just the repetition, repetition or the person, but there's also the position of this beatitude. Now, one of the things that we have noticed in weeks previous is that the Beatitudes 1 through 8 are not just a laundry list of things to do, but rather they are steps. They're progressions, one to the other. And if this is the eighth and final Beatitude, it seems that it would stand as the climax, the pinnacle of what Jesus has been saying to his disciples and to the others that were listening to him uh, that day on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you if you follow this truth from the word of God. Now this is important that we note this about this beatitude for Jesus has emphasized to us, each one of us, as well as his disciples, that we stand on a threshold of a future that no one really knows day to day. But we do know that each one of us has new opportunities. Like a each day is like a blank page before us where we can write our own futures, so to speak. Now, as we stand here, not just as human beings on this planet, but as we stand among the cloud of witnesses of all of the believers that have gone before us, and as well as those fellow believers that remain here on earth, that each one of us has a choice in which how we are to conduct our lives. What does this word persecute mean? If we're going to choose this path, we need to understand the implications of what Jesus is promising to us will happen. Well, let's look at the word persecute because that really does seem to be the negative word here about following these truths. That word in the Greek, 
um, is diaco, diaco, and it comes from the root idea to pursue. I think a, uh, or, uh, another definition is to aggressively chase after, like the hounds chasing the fox, okay? Diaco, to, to chase them and to run them into the ground, to go in for the kill, so to speak, okay? So it's good when people do that to you. A good translation of the word also would be to harass. Jesus is saying, blessed are those which are harassed. And blessed are you when people will harass you. They'll revile you. They'll persecute you. Verse 11 talks about insults, about people. And the idea of, in the Greek, um, uh, it's literally like uh, accusations being thrown in your teeth. But we would think of it like thrown in your face, right? That directly to you. Those insults hurled to us from the world, from our enemies, from the very accuser, Satan himself. The Lord is talking about such persecution that perhaps most of us today probably haven't really experienced. Now, as we looked into the Word of God in the past weeks, as we've looked at these Beatitudes, we've seen each week that it's been important for us to look at each verse in context. Okay, that's kind of like my big deal, context of Scripture. What's really going on in the text? What's really being said? Why is it being said? Why was it written down? What did those words actually mean to the people who heard them the first time they were spoken? All of this is important as to how you're to interpret what these words mean in your life. And one of the most important things to do, I think, is to look at what these words would have meant to the people in Jesus' time. Those that were actually sitting around on the ground or standing up behind people kneeling, listening to Jesus actually speak. Now, as they sit there, as they listen to these astounding words coming out of the mouth of this character, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you think their reaction was? As they heard, many of them believing that perhaps Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just some great teacher, but actually might be the Messiah. The Christ, that's the Greek version of the word Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ is a title, right? They thought Jesus was the Messiah. What did that mean to them? That, that their Redeemer, that was going to be their political religious, economic, military uh, deliverer. And they think Jesus of Nazareth might be this guy. And then they hear from his lips, blessed are they that are persecuted. I dare to say that those, many of them who were listening to Jesus speak that very first time, and certainly those religious leaders that we talk about, some were scribes, others were Pharisees, they would have thought the words coming out of his mouth were the greatest religious nonsense they have ever heard. Why do I think that? Well, don't, don't take my historical analysis of the people of the first century Palestine. Let's actually look to see what happens as other words are recorded. Let me turn to Acts chapter 28. And this is the account of Paul on one of his missionary journeys, this 
character apostle Paul who goes out after his conversion and begins to start churches around the area. Paul, that's where we get a lot of the books of the Bible or letters that Paul writes to these various churches that he started. It gives us some indication, I think, of what people at that time would have thought. Acts chapter 28, verse 3 and 4. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks, was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people on the island saw it, the snake, hanging from his hand, and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he has escaped the sea, he had just been shipwrecked and recovered on this island. Though he has escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. These barbarians, the the Greeks, they're not Jews. So they're more like us. They're, They're not born into Jewish faith. So this isn't even a Jewish thing. They look at him. They see this man, Paul. He's built a fire, and suddenly a deadly snake comes out of the fire, grabs hold of his hand, and what they make as a formula in their mind to explain what they have just seen is that this man must be suffering because he's done something wrong. He must have sinned. Let me turn our attention further to the Gospel account of John chapter 9. Now, this might be a story you've heard before. And the disciples have come across this blind man, and they asked Jesus how it was that this man had been born blind. They looked at Jesus, and they reasoned with him thusly. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he had been born blind? But Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the work of God would become manifest. And is that not also the thinking of our world today? It seems to me, especially increasingly so, in the modern world we live in with New Age religion, there seems to be this thing called karma, that when you do good, good will be done to you, and it'll be weighed up one day, and whenever you come into another life, you'll become a better person or a better being. And as Christians, you might not believe in that, but you might have in your mind, even as a Christian, that the idea is that if you do good, good will be done to you, and if you do evil, well, evil will be done to you. But believe it or not, Jesus' listeners also shared that same idea with you. And let's remember this idea of these expectant Jewish people expecting the coming of the Messiah, and then it seems to be this argument that this guy has come along and it might be him, and they're starting to believe it. And what did that mean? Whom were they waiting on? They were sitting in their lives in the claws, the clutches, the jaws, of the Roman Empire. And they were looking with tears in their faces to the skies for a deliverer, a Messiah, someone to come and deliver them, to set them free, to defeat the enemy, the emperor, this guy, Caesar. 
And when Jesus came, they hailed him as the king of the Jews. And they were waiting on him to come and build there his eternal kingdom. But we also learned, as we've looked at this, week after week after week after week, that they got second-guessed. They had got the whole thing wrong. Because the Lord had told them, my kingdom is in your hearts, children. I come into this place as a peacemaker. I've not come to overthrow the Roman Empire so that I can be in charge. I've come to tell you that the kingdom is now a kingdom of the heart. Not in the physical world, but in the spiritual realm. And what he's saying is that he had come, Jesus, to tear up a world full of sin in order that peace might be brought to a dying race. He also said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, having understood that, put yourself again in their sandals. They're waiting for a military, economic, political, religious leader. And he shows up and he comes out with the astounding words, blessed are you when men take advantage of you, when people will insult you. When they'll revile you, persecute you, they'll say all manners of evil against you. You're blessed, he says, when that happens. You're accepted by God when that happens. The smile of God is on you when these things are happening to you. Now, before we go any further, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's very important because you could be sitting here thinking that as a Christian, you're being persecuted because you're standing in your faith. But the truth is, it, it might not be that you're being persecuted for your faith, but rather you're being persecuted because of your personality. That could be what's happening in your life. You could be persecute, being persecuted, not for the cause of God, but because you're ecclesiastically, you're church-wise, scripturally-wise, you're uneducated. And when it comes to your idea of sharing the message of Jesus' love, you're rude and you're obnoxious. The Lord is saying here that the cause of righteousness, and more importantly, the character of righteousness, is because of our persecution. That's this eighth beatitude. And so what's he saying? He's saying from the beginning of these, that those who are poor in spirit, persecuted. Those who mourn, persecuted. Meek, those that hunger after righteousness, those that are merciful, pure, pure peacemakers, you'll be persecuted. We look week after week after week that this world, and, and this world did not testify. Our world today does not testify or affirm that it's right to be poor in spirit. You're supposed to be great in spirit. There's supposed to be nothing better than self-reliance. Your self-esteem in this world is the pinnacle. You're not to mourn over your sins. You're to forget about them. Get on with your life. You're not to be weak. Weak people get walked over. You're not to be pure. Don't worry about the purity of your mind in a filthy world. Enjoy yourself. Don't hunger after righteousness. Rather, hunger after things like money, sexual or immorality. Whatever it is. Whatever tickles your fancy, if it feels good, do it. That's what our world teaches us every second of every day. 
And again, Jesus comes in. He does throughout this entire sermon, and he turns all of that upside down. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. And here's what the secret of this is, righteousness sake, what it really means. In verse 10, righteousness sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say manner, all manner, sorry, of evil against you. This is the secret because here's the deal. If from the beginning, if you are poor in spirit, if you are mournful over your sin, if you are meek, if you indeed hunger and thirst after the things of God, if you're merciful, if you're pure, if you're a peacemaker, if you do those things in this world, you will be persecuted. Because Jesus is saying here, you'll be persecuted for my sake. Because if you live like this, then you're living out, Jesus says, my life in your life. And that goes against everything the sinful material world celebrates or promotes. We were, read within the word of God that Christ-likeness will always be persecuted. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you no longer belong to this part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, he says. So as a result, it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than its master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they'll listen to you. Are we greater than our master? No. And if we can only see this one thing, one thing about our spiritual life, and that is it's not the way we preach. It's not the way that we witness. It's our Christ-likeness that people will scorn. And they have throughout history. Paul told Timothy, and all of the people, yea, and all that, that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. He told the Christians in Antioch that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. It's this, let's go forward to um, the 20th century. There was a theologian by the name of uh, Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer. He suffered under the hands of the Nazis during World War II. He said suffering then is actually the true badge of discipleship. And if this is the case, then let's talk about a little bit about the suffering and the persecution in our time remaining. I'd like to talk to you about first what our spiritual forebears, what, how they had suffered. How, how, the, how Christians had suffered in uh, times past. The hi historian Tennis Scott Lorett says, no other faith of mankind, religious or political, has quite so extensive a record of violent, bitter opposition to its growth than the Christian church. Think about it. Going right back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. What's happening? The child Abel is being persecuted by Cain. The Lord says to the Pharisees themselves, he said to them face to face, he looked into their eyeballs in Matthew chapter 23 and 35, and he says, as a result, looking at them, he says, you will be held responsible for all of the godly people of all time. From the murder of the righteous Abel 
to the murder of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. And I know that sounds a little gobbledygooky there, but what's interesting is he points out something which is only coincidental to we in the English language. But Abel begins with A and Zechariah begins with Z. And I like to think that A to Z, all of the martyrs of the world testify that those who are blessed are actually persecuted. For they have the blessing of Jesus Christ himself. Stephen, another guy you may or may not know from uh, Acts, he's one of the disciples of Jesus, becomes one of the apostles, one of those guys who's starting the early church. And he gets martyred. He gets killed because of it. And he actually says to the religious leaders himself, he says, which of the prophets have your fathers not scorned? Moses, the people that Moses helped deliver, they grumbled, they wanted his blood. They resented Moses for taking him out of Egypt. We can go to David and read the Psalms about those who attacked him, his enemies of both flesh and spirit. We look at uh, the prophet Elijah as he runs and sits under the tree from this woman, whom you might not know the story, but you probably have heard the woman's name, Jezebel. Jeremiah, the prophet, was beaten and put in stocks, thrown into a cistern of mud, threatened with execution, and eventually was killed. Isaiah, another prophet, second century Christian father Justin Martyr tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden sword. Indeed, the word of God testifies, Hebrews 11 and 36. Others have trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in half, they were tempted, slain with a sword, they were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented. We go and we look at the first uh, sermon in the New Testament. Peter preaches. The very first time a sermon is preached on the good news, and they accuse him of being drunk. The Andrew, the Lord's disciple, tied to a cross and left to die. He was tied upside down because these guys didn't want to actually die in the same way as Jesus, so they killed him in a different way. Through all of this prosecution, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4 and 13, counted themselves these great martyrs as filth of the world. The off-scourging of all things. They counted their life as dung. Scubula, that word in Greek. Uh, given that we've just completed dinner, it's a fairly graphic word, but it means like filthy garbage. Their lives were like that if they were, if they were able to die for Christ's sake. Sure, the early church was accused of drunkenness. <laughs> they were accused of cannibalism because they thought uh, that... Christians, people thought that Christians ate, you know, uh, flesh and drank blood. The Emperor Nero fed uh, thousands of our brothers and sisters in Christ to lions, also burnt them at the stake. Today, we have a struggle with radical fundamentalism uh, faith in Islam because of our faith. You might be facing it at work, your very family, but the reality is, is those who live godly will suffer in this world. But let me also look, our forefathers and mothers suffered, certainly did, but also a promise that you and I will as well. If, if we live godly like Jesus, if we're a Christian, the first seven Beatitudes outline what we ought to have in our lives if we're Christians. And certainly at the conclusion of Beatitude 8, 
that if you're not being persecuted, sometime in your life, you might not have all of these things going on in your life. Now, I'm not talking about that you need to be under the threat of persecution, stoning, murder every moment or day. It's not what I'm saying. But if you've never faced opposition, if you've never faced any type of rejection, insults because of the character of Jesus in your life, you might have to ask yourself, is the character of Jesus in my life? And I think one of the tragedies in the Christian world today um, is that is the truth is that persecution is actually absent in so many of our lives. And why is that? Well, first, I believe that uh, many Christians cut themselves, they segregate themselves off improperly from the world. Remember, Jesus told us to be a light unto the world in this world, this dark place. And if you're going to spread light, you have to be in a dark place. But what do many Christians do? They go to church. Don't get me wrong. That's okay. Right? And we often contact and live our lives only with other believers. We don't really have much contact outside of that world. And any opportunity to share the love of Jesus with other people. We probably play golf. Prefer to play golf with other Christians if we play golf. We, some send their uh, kids to Christian schools. Totally segregating them off from the world at large. Where they can no longer actually reach into the darkness. Many of us simply, because of our own lives and our own materialism have sheltered ourselves from the dark places of the world. Secondly, I believe there's also kind of like quiet quitting Christianity today. Silent Christianity. People who don't talk about Christ in the workplace or the school, that they're a child of God. Is silent Christianity Christianity at all? I think that's a question to ask. A hundred years after this sermon uh, on the Mount was preached, so very early, early on, beginning of the church, a man came uh, to this great church father, a guy by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian. And this guy had a problem. It's because his problem was, since he had begun professing his faith in Christ, I mean, we're talking at the beginning of the second century here, early Christianity, because of his changing life as a Christian, his business interests and his Christian interests were conflicting. And he ends up going to Tertullian, this great church father, and he says, what can I do? I must live. And Tertullian says, must you? Tertullian esteemed death for Jesus greater than life for self. And that's the message that we've maybe not been seeking, searching out, but we have definitely discovered as we've looked at these Beatitudes, the truth is that to live for Christ, to live is Christ, and to die for his sake is actual gain in our lives. That we would count everything in the world, all externalities in our life as scubala, as trash, as filth. That we might be one for Christ and found in him. Our forefathers and mothers suffered spiritually in faith and will suffer as well as, as we live righteously. But this is the great message. This is the great joyous ending 
of all of the Beatitudes, the great ending is that you will be blessed if you suffer for Christ. You'll be blessed with joy. Jesus actually says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you, and men shall revile you, persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You'll not to rejoice in the pain of suffering, not in the sorrows of the world, but to rejoice in the fact that you've been called worthy to suffer for Christ. And that one day, if you have a forward and upward look, you'll be given a great reward in Christ. The Greek word for joy here literally means to leap, to skip, with uh, excessive delight, ecstasy. The great translator J.B. Phillips uh, says, a joy that words cannot express has a hint of the glories of heaven. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, when Peter and his other friends had been flogged, beaten, before the Sanhedrin shortly after the day of Pentecost, says that they, the ones that had been beaten, were left in prison rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer in his name. That's a supernatural joy. That's not the satisfaction of stuff that we get in the world. I finished, I finished all I really want to say about the Beatitudes tonight. In this study of Beatitudes over the past week, weeks, sorry, many, many weeks it seems like. But let me ask you as I close, are you being persecuted for Christ? Not for your character, not for the person you are, but for righteousness sake as a result of Christ's character being in you. Well, if you are, then you're fulfilling the Beatitudes. The Lord says, great is your reward in heaven. We started this discussion tonight, remembering, of course, that those that have come before us and we in the faith today have a choice on how we're to live our lives and how the fact Jesus being in our lives, how our lives might look different than otherwise. And to do that, almost in every instance, recalls us to recoil from the things, the material love, the lust, the greed of the world, and seek something else instead. J.D. Rockefeller, a great rich guy back in the day, he died. And every newspaper in the United States was speculating on how much money J.D. Rockefeller actually had. For one reporter, he had finally had enough, and he ran and he organized a meeting with one of Rockefeller's aides. And he came into him, he went into this room with this aide, and he thought he was going to find out how much money J.D. Rockefeller was worth. He said to him, how much did Rockefeller leave? And the aide said, all of it. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is this. What are you living for? Things of the earth or other things? May it be said of us as a church and individually that we, like Paul, may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And if we can endure it, brothers and sisters, the fellowship with him in suffering. Amen? Yeah. Anybody have any questions? guys. I just can't help as I look back through the entire 
Beatitude series that each and every time we are confronted with this choice. How are we going to live in response to something that at least we say to ourselves we believe in Scripture? If if what we believe is true, we believe Jesus, who Jesus says that he is, then how do we live our lives in response? Every day we have an opportunity for a choice. Recognizing, of course, that the world that we are surrounded with pulls us one way. Promising us something that each and every time we've been pulled that way, we find does not satisfy. Or, or do we go against the current? Do we choose a different path? And are we willing to accept the consequence? What is the consequence? Well, rewards in heaven or persecution here on earth. Scorn. False accusations. It's a tough decision. Is it worth it? Something to think about. Hey, friend, I'll see you next week. You guys mind if I go ahead and get started? No, you mind? No, no. What? I have 15 minutes, please. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. I, I was trying to read that. Yeah, Sisyphon, this, uh, this is a modern-day Iran. Okay. 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 Then this would be modern day Iraq, Jordan, Israel. So Bethlehem's down here. Yeah. This would be in modern day Iran. So this is probably the path that the wise men took in Persia to get to Bethlehem. The story we're going to talk okay. about tonight. I, I always have a hard time connecting the the old map with the new, and just don't quite see it. I get. And this is also kind of blown up yeah, in a weird part of the world too that we don't just yeah. naturally see in our head. Yeah. Yeah. So it helps to kind of then, yeah, and then here's Egypt down here, so. This is, is that, I have my, I have my it's okay. Jared? Israel. Israel, Israel and Jordan's Israel. here, yep. Okay. And then here's the Jordan. Yeah. Oh, Jordan, Jordan and Israel the only two I really recognize them. So uh, tonight um, is called Your Nativity Scene is Wrong. And uh, before I talk about why it's wrong. Let's talk about what the nativity scene is. I think we all know what a crutch, we know what that is. And, and, uh, let me just name off some things that we normally, uh, might see in a nativity scene. Almost every one of the nativity scenes will have a baby Jesus, right? Right. Then we'll probably have a Mary and Joseph. They'll probably be a, a character or a figure. Um, shepherds, Shepherds show up later, that's right. Then probably some cows, some sort of barn animals, uh, maybe an angel, maybe. What else do we normally see in uh, nativity scene? The wise so, men, the star. The star and the wise men. And that's why your nativity scene is wrong. Because they don't belong in the nativity scene. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of what you think you know about that night and then about also the night with uh, the three from the Orient, and we'll talk about that, uh, is, is probably not fully correct. First of all, uh, 
we always think of we three kings, right? Well, there, there weren't three. The Bible doesn't say how many there were. There were three gifts, but doesn't say how many wise men. And as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about here in a second. There was a lot more people from Persia that showed up in Jerusalem than just three. There were at least three. They weren't kings. And they have no business being in your nativity scene at Christmas because the three kings weren't there. So let's talk, first of all, what the Bible says about the nativity scene. And then we're going to look at the other event where these visitors come to find baby Jesus, or at least uh, toddler Jesus. And we're going to see that those are actually two events that we've often conflated into one account. Another reason why we, I think we've conflated these two is because in just two days, uh, we will celebrate a religious event called Epiphany. And Epiphany is actually that time when the wise men show up to recognize the baby Jesus. That's what the church celebrates when it celebrates Epiphany. And that event happens 12 days after Christmas. 12 days of Christmas, we get to Epiphany. The other reason, obviously, because it's celebrated at the same time of year, we just kind of conflate the two stories into one story, but they're not. And the reason why this is important is not so I can do a biblical gotcha, you thought you knew this about the Bible, but you didn't really know. It's not the reason. The real reason why I think it's important to know these distinctions because when we put the two together, we actually rob both of the events of the power that they're trying to teach in being included in Scripture. So we kind of cut the story in half unfairly when we put the two together. So tonight, I'd like for us uh, briefly to look at the two stories and then focus on the Epiphany story as it's coming up. We celebrate Epiphany Sunday on Sunday, really kind of focusing on what that event is so that we can kind of maybe tease out the symbolism, what the Bible's trying to teach us symbolically about that event. But first, let's look at the nativity, Luke 2, beginning uh, chapter 2, beginning with 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, right, today in the town of David, a Savior's been born. It's the day that Jesus was born. Little bitty baby infant, umbilical cord end of his body, Jesus. Right? He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign. To the shepherds, the angel is saying, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great... Company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord had told us, told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Okay, there's our nativity scene. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. All that had heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her hearts. 
Then the shepherds leave the nativity scene and they go back to to their flocks. But on their way, Scripture says, they go glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which where they were just told. The nativity scene. Now, this story sounds a little bit like the same story. This is the story of the wise men. We find this in the gospel account according to Matthew chapter 2. <coughs> Pardon me. After Jesus was born in Judea. So right there we know these are not the same event because Luke says that the angel says today in Bethlehem Jesus was born. This story says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not the same thing. During the time of King Herod, we'll talk about this, from the east came to Jerusalem, uh, Magi rather, Magi, we'll talk about all this, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is again the story of the three wise men, right? But they're not three and they're not kings. They have come to worship Jesus. Now, what does all this mean? Who are the magi? What is, okay, well, first of all, magi or magus is a term for a magician. That's where we get the term magic. It's from these people. Who are these people? These people were Zoroastrian priests, which is a religion that we would find, a monotheistic religion that we would find in, uh, in Persia at the time. And they were schooled in things like astronomy and astrology, right? Not only were these wise men in this religion schooled in things like astronomy and astrology, remember that hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, let's put Jesus at zero, right? At zero, we have to remember our Bible history and realize what had happened six and seven hundred years prior. Well, what had happened? The Persian and the Babylon, the Babylonian, then the Persian, the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem and destroy the city. And they take all of the people who work in the government, right, and all of the religious leaders, they take them and they take them back to Babylon and they put them in the royal court so that they, because these were people who were literate. They weren't just shepherds. They weren't just fishermen or simple merchants. But this ruling class of people were administrating specialists. And so to the new empire, they were very, very important because they took this group of people from a conquered land in Jerusalem, these Israelites, and they co-opted them into the imperial system and put them to work. Why? Because they were educated. They were also religious. And so over over this time, they bumped shoulders with other priests and other religious figures that we find in Babylonia, and then later in the Persian Empire. And these people, like these Zoroastrian Magi, they had heard the stories of people like Daniel. Remember Daniel from the Old Testament? 
Guys, remember Daniel and Lion's Den and all that bit? Remember Daniel? Where did Daniel live? He was a part of the Babylonian captivity, right? He had the three buddies, Meshach, Shadrach, and Horshach, right? That was all a part, Nebuchadnezzar, that was all a part of being a part of this ruling class of people. So they were familiar with their stories. And one of the things that was unique about the Zoroastrians, the Egyptians and the Romans actually shared this really with the Jewish people, is because of the age of the Jewish religion, these conquering people always held the Jewish religion in favor. They were, for the most part, allowed, often, allowed these people to perpetuate uh, their stories and to practice their religions. Not always. The story of, uh, of Daniel and having to do the fasting, that wasn't really a part of, that wasn't a royal decree, ended up being a royal decree, but it was really kind of a, they, they were jealous of Daniel and they were trying to get rid of him. General practice was, as long as you showed some sort of fealty or respect or, um, what do you call it, uh, loyalty to the emperor and do your job, you're pretty much allowed to practice your religion. And the Zoroastrians held the Jewish religion in high regard. And they were familiar with the Old, pardon me, the Old Testament prophecies. And that's going to come up here in just a minute. Because they had become familiar with this God, Yahweh. And they had been greatly influenced by the power of the stories of Yahweh. And these magi, whatever it was that they saw in the sky that they thought was a star, they remembered these old prophecies and they obeyed. They actually go 1,200 miles by foot and by camel, right, to obey. So, 1,200 miles later in our story, they all show up. Like I said before, there's not just three of them. Verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now this is a a perfect example of a Bible verse that we could just read and just go right over to the next sentence and not even stop and think about what's being said. When King Herod heard, heard what? Heard of these people, this entourage showing up. From Persia, he was disturbed. And it says, not just a few people that saw them come in through the gate. Scripture says, all of Jerusalem with him were terrified. Now, I hope that you're maybe sitting there going, yeah, but I wonder how big was Jerusalem back in the first century. Well, let me tell you, I did some research. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus would have been a city of about 70 to 80,000 people. Okay? So there's 8,000 people in Cushing. So Jerusalem this time is 10 times the size of Cushing. Oh, that doesn't really make much sense to me. Uh, It's twice the size of Stillwater during the time of Jesus. That might give us a better, I don't know if that helps or not. Right? But if, if everybody in town was upset, Is it three guys on a donkey and a camel? Uh Uh-uh. There's tons of people coming 
with this, with this entourage. So much so that it disturbed the king and terrified the people. Now, also, it's also not going to be a generally a good idea, but they end up doing this. It's not a good idea to go up to the reigning king or queen and say, hey, who's really in charge here, right? Where's the real king? But that's actually what our, our friends from Persia do. When he, he in this phrase, Herod, the king, when he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is this Messiah to be born? <gasps> okay, maybe there's something to this. So Herod brings the guys who got the big thick Bibles, you know, the choke a mule. Get them out here, open them up. What's going on, boys? I know there's something in there about the Messiah. I know that they talk about it. Where, do, where does it happen? And they come up with the answer. In Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now again, let's unpack this. Whenever the entourage shows up to King Herod's court and everybody is freaking out, and they get the preachers together and say, these guys are saying the Messiah is here. And they've, they've walked 1,200 miles following that star. Where is it supposed to lead? Bethlehem. Okay. All right. Um, I'm sorry, I just lost my spot. Where did, where did I go? These people, these, specifically these preachers, these teachers of the law, how long have they been waiting for these stories to come true? Hundreds of years. Remember, the guys, Daniel and the guys were telling the Magi about it 600 years before. They've been waiting hundreds of years for this to actually be true. And they're actually referring to a Hebrew prophet that we find in Holy Scripture, a prophet by the name of Micah. And just to read that prophecy, 5 and 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's what it says, you're small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over, over the Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. He'll stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness, this Messiah, will reach to the ends of nowhere. Okay? We believe this prophecy to be true. Put your mind in, in the mind of the priests. And out of nowhere, this menagerie, maybe of hundreds of people that have come 1,200 miles show up out of nowhere. And without any debate, at least Scripture doesn't record any, there doesn't appear to be any doubt that the Messiah has actually arrived. If any of the priests and the, and the, and the teachers of the law objected with what the wise men have actually come and told King Herod, Scripture doesn't say, well, some people were for it and some people were against it. And when that happens in Scripture... 
we actually find Scripture talking about that. Whenever there's disagreement amongst people, the Bible will often uh, discuss what their disagreements were about. In this case, it, does, it seems to be not even up for debate. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully a child. As soon as you find him, report to me, King Herod says, so I too can go and worship him. Don't believe Herod. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, now wait a minute. Our nativity scene isn't in a house. Where is it? It's in a manger, right? Might have even been a cave. Not a house. But here, here it's a house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And that's about all Scripture has to say about the Magi, although there are other traditions out there about what ends up happening to these guys, and it's kind of an interesting story. But really, right off the bat here, Right? The truth is, this is not when Jesus is a baby. It takes longer than you think to walk 1,200 miles. This is probably more like when Jesus was about two years old. Right? And he's only a couple years uh, old as this believed Messiah. And right away, this is the power that I want to talk about when we don't see it, when we put these two stories together one of the cool things about the magi story is it shows different ways that people react to the reality of jesus in the world in different ways and that's going to be true about jesus to today people are confronted with the reality of jesus just as they were in the time of jesus and people don't all act in the same way right What's one of the most fascinating stories, things about the story is that despite all the different circumstances that exist in this time period, in the first century, we're in the 22nd century, in the first century, right? Is that right? 23rd century now, aren't we? Isn't that, is that how it works? Yeah. Is it the 23rd century now? Golly, right? The way humans interact or react to God are still very consistent, okay? Another thing that I think is super important to tell about this story, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more because um, about distance. And I talked a lot about how the distance, the long distance, right? 1,200 miles. Long distance to go and find the Messiah from Persia to Bethlehem. 1,200 miles to go see if Messiah's here. How far is Jerusalem from Bethlehem? Do you want to take a guess? Five miles. And if you walked every day, because they didn't have cars in the first century, how far is five miles? That's around the corner, man. We're going to talk about this in a second. Scripture doesn't talk about any of the priests or teachers of the law hopping on with the guys on the camel to go see if it's actually true or not. 
They've been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this to come true. These guys show up out of nowhere and they can't be bothered to walk the last five miles to encounter Jesus for themselves. First character, though, that I'd like to look at tonight is the king. And we're going to talk more about those priests. Now, Herod uh, was known as Herod the Great. He was a very powerful king, but he was also, uh, his tribe was the Edomites. And what that essentially means is that the earthly king of the Jews here, King Herod, actually isn't a Jew. He's, Edomites uh, come from the clans of anyone? Esau. Edom and Esau, the two names for each other, is, uh, it means red and burly. That's what it means. The clans of Esau are the people that become the Edomites of which Herod is a member. Now, What's that mean? Well, it means he can't be a part of the people of Israel. Why? Because his brother, Esau's brother, Jacob got that blessing, not Esau. And yet, here is someone descended from Esau as the king of the Jews. I think this is kind of, that's kind of an interesting thing. So when the Magi show up, uh, the reading tells us that this king was very disturbed. He may have had a guilty conscience or realized, dude... I, I'm not even a Jew. King Herod's afraid and he's faced with the prospect perhaps of God demonstrating God's will on the world. And despite Herod as having the great as a last name, Herod does not dispute God's power and there's a real fear with him. And that can happen to us as well. Herod, Herod knew enough to know that what was going on around him, this is not a fairy tale. Herod knew this was true. Or if he would, or he wouldn't react the way that he does at this point in the story, and later when he asks for all of the children of Bethlehem, the age of Jesus, to be killed. He believes this story to be true. Sometimes submitting to God's will brings fear upon ourselves as well. It's interesting about the fear is it's typically, for me at least, not fear because I believe God will act and he won't. More times than not, when I have the fear of God, it's whenever I want God to act and I know for sure that he will exert his will on my life. And that brings a fear because I know often my personal desires don't often line up with what God desires of me. And that's the same thing we're getting here with Herod. He knows God's acting in the world. He knows he's not the appointed king, and he's afraid. Submitting to God, Herod teaches us, just like us can sometimes be scary. Another character that I'd like to look at in response Again, I just talked about them, but the scribes and the priests. Let's look at their part of the story. Let me show you a very common response to God, and that's apathy. Verse 4, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet had written, they said. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, God says, Israel. Not very ambiguous here. 
seems pretty clear. As I said earlier, if there was any dispute or disagreements about this prophecy coming true between these teachers and preachers of the law, it doesn't show up in Scripture. It must not have been significant enough to be recorded. My reading of the text seems to indicate that some folks had simply shown up and, the, and, and said the Messiah, you know, the one you guys have all been waiting for is here. And we just need to know where he is. And come to find out the answer is simple. Bethlehem. Now see the apathy or uncaring, uncaring nature of these priests. Again, we have to point out the geography of the situation. In a pedestrian society, it would have been very, very common for people to walk a couple of hours a day. You would have spent your whole life waiting for the coming of the Messiah. As a teacher or a preacher of the law, you spent so much of your life pouring over Holy Scripture. Then one day, the king of the Jews calls you to his room, asks you where the Messiah is to be born, because apparently he has been, and you're not even curious enough to walk the five miles to go check it out for yourself? Songwriter friend of mine, a guy by the name of Scott Evans, once said, the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. If you hate something, or hate someone, you still have some level of emotion to at least care enough to be mad about it. Even if it's emotion of disgust, Apathy is the absence of that emotion. Put simply, the teachers and the priests have been expecting, they have been praying, they had been pleading with God to send a deliverer to them. And because it doesn't come to them in the way that they expected, they simply, out of whole cloth, disregard the possibility. Just like Herod and our fear about God in our lives, often we too can be apathetic like the priests. What do we want out of a deliverer, out of a Messiah? Good fortune, good jobs, more money in the bank account, good something. So often we Christians turn our lives over to God. There's not some instant transformation the way that so many of us think that we should expect. And we sense, therefore, that this Christianity thing just isn't working. Maybe it works for some people, but it just doesn't work for me. And then we end up turning our backs on God. It's not that we hate God. It's that we just don't care. There's one more group I'd like to look at this evening. And that's these magi. Because these wise men give us an example of faith. The priests... Couldn't have been bothered to walk the five miles to Bethlehem and see for themselves. They weren't willing to sacrifice a couple of hours. Again, the distance from Persia, 12 to 1300 miles. We also suppose this trek took at least a year long. Now, again, I say these things and you, there's a little bit of us that go, oh yeah, that is a lot. Stop for a second. Put yourself on the carpets. Inside the tents of these caravans. We hear a 1,200 mile trip and we think, gosh, a long time. 
But I mean, really, think about it. Think about after six to eight months of walking, desert, traveling. Many of you not even sure where you're headed. You're not totally sure that you'll even make it. At what point, honestly, would you begin to question the safety of your trip? To even maybe question your own sanity? Trusting what you've been told about the God of Israel? Not even your God. But trusting that you're on your way to discover the Savior of the world? Our lives can be just like their lives sometimes too. We're told of God. We trust. We walk. We set up camp for the night. We walk. We escape some bandits, some robbers. Maybe not. Maybe we get robbed. Good things happen. but Probably a lot more bad things happen than good things to us on the way. But we continue to trust. And we continue to walk. We continue to believe that the creator of the world, our God, acts in our lives and has plans for our salvation. And despite the circumstances of our travel, we continue to walk. And one day, one day, we come upon the house where the star finally rests. And what we encounter overjoys us. We fall on our face and we worship. And we offer as gifts the most valuable things that we have. For many of us, it's our hearts. It's control of our lives. Why? Because we had the faith to trust in God. Because we believe that God's promises are true. And that God has brought a Savior into the world to save it. Any questions? That's why your nativity scene is wrong. Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary. And here we are, a whole new year. A whole new year of Bible study. We're going to continue on on our study. We're calling the Bible study for grown-ups. And this week, the very first one of the year, we're going to look at an event called the Epiphany and why your nativity scene is wrong and why it matters. We'll see you on the other side. So, confronted with the truth about Jesus in the world, which person will we choose to be? Will we act like King Herod? Or will we become apathetic as the priests and the teachers of the law? Or do we have the faith and courage to be like the Magi? Seeking for ourselves, despite the cost, despite the travel, despite the miles, will we continue to walk and trust so that we can encounter God for ourselves? That's the question of Epiphany. That's the question for us as we walk into this new year. Anyway, it's something to think about. Hey, friend, uh, I hope to see you next week. And until then, be blessed.
No, it's perfect. You're five. Don't you? No, that's totally cool. But we're not on a, the, the bell ain't going to ring. I know, but... <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and get started, though. I don't anticipate that this is going to take so much time that it would bump us into the board meeting, but I just want to make sure. Uh, we're looking at a story in Daniel 3. Uh, tonight, we're calling... Uh, in the middle of the fire. And uh, this is actually something that we mentioned last, we mentioned on the side last week um, about the time of Daniel when we were looking at the story of the Magi, right? Uh, about how did the Magi in Persia know about these traditions that came from Hebrew scripture, from the Old Testament. And we talked about how there were those guys that were taken from Jerusalem when Jerusalem fell by the Babylonians who conquered them and took them back into Babylon to serve in their royal court because they were educated people. Daniel, Daniel of the lion's den, that guy is a part of that group of people. And that's how the Magi, those uh, astronomers from Persia, basically, how they come to know the stories of God, Yahweh. And so I thought, I'm actually, I'm in the middle of working on another thing called the rules of the road, but I'm not ready yet. So I thought I'd do a couple, probably take me a couple of weeks to get that ready to go. So we're just going to do a couple of one-offs. Tonight, we're just going to look at the story of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very simple child Bible story, right? Again, one of the things that I try to do with our Bible studies is to remind us that if we've grown up in the Christian tradition, as adults, more than likely, one of two things have happened. You were either taught the Bible that you're supposed to live your life by, you were taught the Bible when you were a kid, or you were taught the Bible as an adult, but you were probably taught the Bible by somebody who was taught the Bible as a kid. So, so many of us have a childlike understanding of what's really talked about in the Bible, 
And then when we put that up against the adult problems we have in the world, our childlike understanding of the relationship between God and us doesn't seem to hold up. And that causes a lot of people to walk away from faith. People walk away from faith every day for no more reason than the fact that they don't really understand what the story of the Bible is about. So in this uh, time together, we like to call this Bible for grown-ups, so we can have an adult understanding. So I'd like to take a child's story from Daniel 3, the story of the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get thrown in the fire. And I'd actually like to talk about what that story actually is supposed to teach us. Now, the reality is, for many of us, unfortunately, we might be going through a very difficult time. Uh, I've heard a pastor say, and I think this is very wise, it's also very true, you're either coming out of a hard time, you're in the middle of a hard time, or a hard time is probably just around the corner. A lot of us as Christians, we just don't want to believe that we really should suffer in the world. I mean, we hear it in the Bible but we don't really believe it. We, we think that when we become Christians, everything is supposed to become blessing. And that's just not how it works. Well, it might be a blessing, but it might not feel like it at the time. Jesus himself says to us, I mean, you don't have to take your pastor's word for it. Jesus literally says in John 16 and 33 that in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, Jesus says, for I've overcome the world. I don't know what your situation might be, but maybe it is that you are battling one fire or another. It could be a financial fire you're in the middle of right now. Unfortunately, for some people, it could be a health-related fire. It could be some relational situation. It could be that your job is unstable. Maybe it's that you have been out of work and you've been searching for a long time. You can't figure out why things don't get better. You're doing everything that you think you should do, and yet you're still struggling. So what do we do when we're in the middle of the fire? Well, before we actually get into our story, I'd like to go around Scripture and see what's being said about this uh, topic. First, Peter, I pray that this will speak to you. Peter, writing in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 7, says these trials, and he's talking about exactly the things we are just talking about, the things that trip us up, right? These trials, whatever it is you're going through, will show you that your faith is genuine. And if you endure these trials... They'll show the quality and the depth of your faith. He says in seven, it's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many uh, trials, it will bring much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter says these trials will reveal your faith. And it will show that your faith is genuine. In fact, one of the things when talking about faith in our story today, 
that, that we're going to learn is that, and I hope that you can be encouraged through your own fire, is understand that a faith that is actually tested in your life is a faith that can be trusted. If you've actually put your faith to the test through these trials, and God has proven faithful to you, your faith can be trusted. God can be trusted. In fact, we're going to look at a faith that's tested in the three lives uh, of these uh, boys, these Hebrew boys. They're probably aged 14 or 15. Biblical scholars think probably 14, 15 years old. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, again, we talked last week about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who was a very evil dude. I mean, there's a lot of churches that when, Pete, when the pastor says Nebuchadnezzar, people will boo. Like, he's got a really bad rap in scriptural history, and rightfully so. At one point, he makes a giant statue, and he tells everybody in the kingdom that you're going to need to bow down and worship this golden statue of me, and it's 90 feet tall, okay, 30 yards tall, 90 feet in the air. And it was nine feet wide. And he says to every government leader, every advisor, every judge, every magistrate to come to the dedication. And in Daniel 3, verses 4 through 6, the herald shouts out, When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipes, and all the other musical instruments, he tells us to bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Bow to the ground. And worship the statue. Then he says in verse 6, anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into the burning furnace. Anyone who does not obey will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, if you know the story or you read on verses 12 through 15, you're going to see everybody is bowing low. Everybody's bowing low except for these three teenage boys who continue to stand firm. Even when there was a trial that could cause them to be thrown into a fire, they stood tall because a faith that's tested is a faith that can be trusted. It's very interesting in the story we have these three teenage boys that are facing what looks to be like a pretty bad day. And there are some qualities that occur within our faith when we're facing a season of trials or, for today's purpose, our own fires. And I really believe in my heart that if you're here or you're listening to this message on purpose, I believe that God is going to speak to you, specifically as to why God would allow these circumstances, these challenges that we experience in our lives. Three qualities of faith that the story is going to show us. We're going to talk about today as we navigate our way through the fire. Okay, the first one I'd like to talk about. Faith obeys God instead of following mankind. Faith obeys God instead of following people. Everybody's bowing. These three boys are standing. Scripture says in verse 16... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I love this. King Nebuchadnezzar is the 
king of the Babylonian empire. King, Kevin, king Nebuchadnezzar is a god. These three teenage boys, 14, 15 years of age, say to this guy, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. All right, it's pretty cocky. 14-year-olds staring down a king, imminent death, saying, you know what, king? We don't have to give you an answer because, as far as we're concerned, this isn't about you and us. This is between us and God. Faith obeys God instead of following man. They didn't have to pray about it. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to fast on it. They didn't have to take this dramatic circumstance in their life and post it in graphic detail on Facebook or put a poll on Twitter asking, what should I do? They had one predetermined plan, and that was obedience to God, period. That's it. We will be obedient to God no matter what. Faith obeys God instead of following man. I think it would have been so easy if you put yourself in their sandals. At least I would say it would have been so easy to rationalize some compromise. Think about it. Everybody's bowing. They could have just said to each other, all right, look, just bow down, right? Pretend you're worshiping this 90-foot ridiculous statue, but in our hearts we'll be singing hymns, right? I mean, we believe in the one true God. We'll just, we'll just fake it. Or they could say, you know what? Just worship the idol. And then tomorrow, I'll wake up with a lot of guilt. And I'll wake up with a lot of shame. And I'll do what I've always done before. And this may hit home for you. I'll just ask God to forgive me. They'll just do it. Then feel bad about it. And ask God for forgiveness. Or, or another option, just rational thought. Look, if I don't bow down, I am surely dead. And if I'm dead, well, who's left to tell all these people about Jehovah, the one true God, right? Maybe they could have said, they could have said maybe I'll just compromise this one time and go against God. They didn't do any of it. It's a predetermined outcome that's going to be, we are going to honor God no matter but what, and we will not follow what everybody else is telling us to do. And I promise you, friends, that if you are a follower of Christ and you are truly following after God's calling in your life, Satan, your spiritual enemy, will give you ample opportunity in this world even today. To get you to compromise what you know to be true. What you know to be God's purposes for your life. But we'll not listen. We'll not go there because our faith will focus on an audience of one. The second thing about faith is faith obeys in spite of what it sees. Faith obeys... In spite of what it sees. Daniel 3, verse 17, 
They're speaking to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able, is able. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. No matter what I see, I believe that not only is my God all-powerful, but I believe my all-powerful God is willing to save me. And friends, there is a big, big difference between God being able to do something in my life and God wanting to do something in my life. And this is Christianity 101. Because no matter the circumstance, we need to believe that. That God is not only able, but God wants to. So, despite what we see, how do we continue to believe that? Well, one, one, <coughs> pardon me, simply have to trust God. Our faith has to rise to those situations and that you believe with everything in you that my God is not only able, but I believe my God is willing to heal. Heal, sorry. Now, what God actually does, well, that's up to God. But he has called us to pray and to believe in prayers of faith. And maybe for you, maybe you're looking at a dangerously low checking account, so you need to sell the sea right? Or second, you get a job. You get a second job, any job. Third, you believe with everything, right? about this financial problem. My God is willing and able to be my provider. That's why one of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. It means God is my provider. There's so much doubt, even in a little room like this. Because I think that so often we're lured into thoughts of the things, thoughts that we allow ourselves to think. Things that we allow ourselves to pray. And things that we allow the circumstances around us in our lives to define for us about God. But friends, God is not confined to what we see. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, being the creator of the universe is exceedingly and abundantly more than you would ever dare ask him to do. So why do we doubt? Our faith says that God is with us, and our faith believes in that no matter what we see. And that really leads us to, if we're honest, the hardest question in all of this. What if God doesn't do what you're believing in God to do for you? What if you believe that God is going to heal and that person unfortunately dies? What if you believe God's going to bring your child back into faith with Christ, but it seems like they just get far, sucked farther down into addiction, into rebellion against God? What do you do then? Because that's where some of us might be living, and we know it. Well, let me give you this final thought. Faithful obedience is our responsibility. The outcome is God's. 
and understanding this, believing this, and truly understanding what these words mean are incredibly foundational in a successful Christian life. Faithful obedience is what our job is. It's our responsibility. The outcome is God's. Living out what God has called us to do, the life that he has purpose for us to live, that is our job. But that is where our job ends. What God does after that is where God's job begins. Our job is the obedience part. Be faithful. But how God plays this all out, well, that's up to him. So with these ideas about importance in faith in mind, let's actually look at the, what happens in the story. And let's see if we can't see some of these principles of faith actually being demonstrated out here in Scripture. Daniel uh, 3, we're now in verse 18. I love this. Now remember, three boys staring down a king. I believe that my God's able. I believe that my God's willing. Verse 18, this is so good. I'm going to take a sip of coffee real quick before I start it. But even if he doesn't, I believe, they say, that God is able and God wants to. But the verse continues. But even if he doesn't, I believe that my God will save me. I believe that God wants to save me. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, Scripture continues, Your Majesty, we will never... We will never, ever serve your gods or worship your gold statue that you've set up. The verse concludes, we will do what is right before God and we will trust him with the outcome. And here's the thing. This is one of my favorite things about doing these Bible studies, especially whenever we're talking about stories that happened 600 B.C., Right? Thousands of years ago, we can read this story and it's easy for us to listen here and say, well, duh, of course they'd feel that way. Well, duh, of course they'd say that to the king because we already know how the story ends. They didn't. When they were saying these words, when they were making this pronouncement of their faith in God to King Nebuchadnezzar, they were certain that they were going into a really hot oven and were about to become crispy critters. They don't know what God is actually going to do, but their faith is unwavering because they know intimately the goodness and the power and the heart of their God. And so in response to their insolence, to this rebellion, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? For the first time, King Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to be stoked seven times hotter than normal. He orders the soldiers to bind the hands, tie behind them, the hands of these three boys, and have them thrown into the furnace. Our heroes are about to be killed. And the Bible actually says that the furnace was so hot it actually describes that the soldiers who were throwing the boys into the furnace 
actually died from the heat. Not by being in the furnace, but just being on the outside of it. That's how hot it was. And so seemingly they get thrown into their death. But God, right, verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke to his counselors. Did we not cast three men bound up in the middle of the fire? And they, the advisors, said, true, O king. Look, he answered, we see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the fourth of the and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Many people believe that something called a Christophany, right? This is Bible study, so I gotta say things like this. And a Christophany is um, there are people that believe that Jesus shows up in spiritual form at different times in the Old Testament. And when he does, those revelations, those appearances of Christ in the Old Testament are called Christophanies. Some people think that this is an actual Christophany and Jesus is in with the three guys. Listen, God will show you his power in all kinds of different ways throughout the course of our lives. You'll know his presence, the tangible reality of the presence of Christ best, not when you are on the mountaintop, but when you are in the middle of your fire. And someone might need to hear that this evening. We, three, we threw three boys in, and now we see four men loose. Now, uh, one of the things that gets talked about all the time about this story is that Scripture says that not only they were unharmed, but they were unburned, right? That their robes were unburned. I think it actually even says that they didn't even smell like smoke. But that's not true. There actually was something burned. And I think obviously if we look at the text, and I hope that you might need to hear this, we can see that because the Bible says that they were no longer bound, that they were loose. When they were thrown into the middle of the fire, they were bound up. And as they looked in, they saw four men unbound. The fire burned what had bound them. Why is that relevant? Right, because some of us are facing, are in the middle of a fire right now. Some are big, some are small, and you are begging God to deliver you from this suffering. You are begging God to end this season of challenge in your life in this season of hurt, of trial. But could I just propose possibly, perhaps, even as we see in the story, that the very thing that you want God to remove from you is the very mechanism God wants to use to actually unbind you, to set you free. And so, our childlike Bible story today concludes, verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, 
when God shows up in our hurt, the world will look at us, will look on and see us. And when they see our faith, our perseverance, even when we're in the middle of the fire, God will be glorified. They'll see you, but it'll bring glory to God. And maybe they'll say, praise be to the God of Jason, who was set free from addiction and never went back. Praise be to the God of Samantha, who stood by her husband, she didn't have to, and God made their marriage better than new. Praise be to the God of Jonathan, who began finally to honor God with his finances. When you stand in the midst of a battle, people are looking on, they'll see you, but they'll bring glory to God. Verse 28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, God, and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their very lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their god. When our faith is tested, that's a faith, my friends, that can be trusted. Any questions? Killer. All right, thanks.